0: <laughs> it just, it just like I start to remember how I felt on that day, and I'm like, oh, the like major key kind of sky Yeah,
1: I was a, I was never a fan of like um, emo growing up, which. Oh. Several of those bands I've come to have an appreciation for as an older man, but growing up, that was like what all the really handsome, popular people were into, <laughs> which they weren't that handsome or popular. They were just getting laid and getting high, and that seemed sure. appealing to me as a
0: teenager. <laughs> yeah, I think those people, when I was young, uh, mostly liked, uh, like party hip-hop. Oh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, a lot,
1: when I think about the people who are into hip-hop now, a lot of that stuff they were doing was very embarrassing, and I don't, I don't have a lot of sentimentality for it.
0: What kind of, what kind of emo bands are you talking about, exactly? I mean, I really
1: like, I really like, like, first wave emo, uh, Jimmy World is a band I've
0: always liked a whole hell of a lot. I, I, um... I was always a little uh, like reluctant to uh, pay any attention to email. Just, I don't know. It's like those, cause those people were even lower on the social ladder than I was. So I was like, yeah, I'm not going to.
1: Oh, really? That. Okay. Yeah. But uh,
0: I went to college in Champaign-Urbana and I lived around the corner from the house on the American football album. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> so I checked out that record eventually and I was, I was a little bit put off by the vocal delivery at first, but like after like my third listen, I was like, this is genius. That super high pitch vocal delivery that so many of those bands it's, employed. Well, just, just like how dramatic it is. It was very shocking to me because it's just I I have I don't really listen to anything like that before that anyway you know
1: yeah i see exactly what you're saying um i i do like that record the few times i've been through it's a very decent record they're a much different band now though from what i understand yeah yeah well
0: they're um their their newer stuff is a lot more well recorded like to its detriment i think like i i think the the weird um you know medium-fi quality that the original record had. It was really, uh, you know, when I was, when I listened to it, from, I was listening to it on cassette when I was getting into it.
1: Oh, oh, okay. I see exactly yeah. what you're saying there. Yeah. So the, yeah. the tone of the record feels different for you now that you have to listen to it on probably digital
0: Well, like their, their newer stuff is, it's recorded a lot better. Like their, uh, what, what's the song? Um, Never Meant, the big one. You can hear the tape machine have a little glitch like in the middle of that song if you listen closely. Oh, it was recorded on like a one inch 16 track tape machine, I think.
1: I see. Huh.
0: Actually, I have another fun fact there's a music video for that song that they put out in like 2014 when they were like getting back together, and part of it takes place in a record store. And that record store in Champaign was the first place where I played a show that wasn't a house or a high school. Oh, thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very cool.
1: I, uh, <laughs> I, I really uh, think I. It, here's a controversial opinion I've been getting. In my head as I get older, you don't really get to call yourself punk when you start playing like arenas and things that are so big (laughs) that like there's so much money involved with it. And uh, I kind of feel that way about most alternative things. Like if you really want to be alternative, you have to (laughs) you have to play like kind of out of the way places, you know, places with character that you're just not going to get in those big circles.
0: I mean it's hard for me to imagine enjoying playing at places like that because I wouldn't really enjoy um even going to see a show there so much when, Personally. I, uh,
1: when I think about louder than life in louisville that that was there this year and it's been there for a few years now and i I just can't imagine yeah, it's a big festival, and I just uh I can't imagine really like. I know a lot of those people probably have like punk type credibility going into them too. But when you're playing for that many people and you're part of that like industry to such a degree, I mean, I think you lose a a certain level of credibility with your like common man because you're not like
0: a common person when you're doing that. I just can't stand, you know, I think five bands on a bill is pushing it. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, if, if there's more than five bands, it's like, oh, geez.
1: I mean, there's always problems setting up too. There's always time to set up Uh like, oh my God.
0: Well, even to just go see that, it's like, geez, like I don't want to be standing for that long. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like if you're going, like part of the reason all night movie theaters used to work well as a functionary thing was that you could sit down and watch a movie for so long and You could Mm -hmm. get up and go around for a minute and maybe go to the arcade they had in in the lobby or something and then go back and check another movie out. You you don't have to worry about wearing yourself out to such a degree. And I think some of these bigger events that are outside, they have a real issue with that. I went to this Adult Swim thing that happened in Louisville a couple of years. No, it's probably been more like four or five years back. Actually, okay. no. No, it's probably been about seven years. It's been a while. Oh, geez. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, I'm letting the time get away from me as I get older. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> anyways, I went there, and the only thing you really had to do was go around and play, like, a couple of carnival-type games and win prizes. You had, mm. like, a giant inflatable slide that you could go down, I guess, for a ticket's. and that was it until they premiered the new shows they were doing later that night but Mm. when you showed up you could not leave what why not because they didn't want you to like be coming in and coming out and like messing with their
0: profits no re-entry yeah yeah
1: so like basically I was just in the hot sun sitting on the grass for so long because there was almost nothing to do they, oh, had a, man. they had a DJ in... messing around, but it was still kind of ridiculous. And it was like four hours of us on the grass until they showed. In Louisville? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh my yeah.
0: God. The second time I went there, it was like walking through soup.
1: Oh man, yeah. Um, in <laughs> July? Yeah, yeah. It was in July. And like, yeah. like there was a point like when we... When we actually got the new shows, which we had, like, maybe, I'm thinking about an hour and a half of, like, actual new material. Maybe not even that. Maybe an hour of new material they showed. I was there, like, four or five hours. and I may- I maybe got an hour of new material previewed to everyone there. I spent, like, 30 oh bucks goodness. on this, too. Yeah. It was crazy. It was really crazy. They didn't have near enough to do. And they... There just was like, you could get water bottles and stuff, but even then, I didn't want to spend, <laughs> like, two or three bucks on a water bottle at all. I, I barely had any money whatsoever, right?
0: <laughs> the Ohio River Valley is so humid. That river is so big.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. You ever, you ever played a gig there? I played. Yeah, I've played a couple gigs in Louisville. That's the only times I've ever been there, actually.
1: When I was a teenager, I used to go down there and like, I don't want to say the term panhandle, I guess uh, I was a street performer. Busking. <laughs> yeah, busking. That's that's the way you put it. And, yeah. and I had intriguing times doing that. Holy hell. Sure. Yeah. It's holy an hell.
0: interesting place.
1: Um, they, they really cracked down on that over the course of the few years I went there and was doing that. Yeah. Because, like I think I did that like over the summers for two or three years with my friend, and let me tell you, <laughs> that third year we went down there and that was all cleared out. They were not allowing uh, any type of musicians to perform on yeah. street corners at nights, and I really hate that type of corporatization because unfortunately... There aren't a lot of places for musicians to get opportunities to perform in front of audiences, and there's been a long tradition of people playing in the street and mm. like finding opportunities that way. And I, I understand why that presents a weird uh, dynamic in this day and age, but I also think there, I, I nobody's hurting anybody when they're doing that. You know, like, nobody's creating the real volume. issue. It, it also feeds into anti-homeless stuff as it's, well. Yeah, that's, that's really what it is. Yeah, and that, that's a big part of what it is. Like, they've been cracking down on the homeless so heavily the past, mm-hmm. like, 10 years. And when, what I was seeing was a larger implementation of the crackdown on the homeless.
0: Yeah, they're, they're just casting a wide net on that stuff.
1: Yeah, and what's really fucked up with that stuff too is that it's been statistically proven that it's more beneficial to just help the homeless have stable housing of some kind, of any kind, than it is to allow them to survive like that. But anybody who's rich, seem, anybody who's rich in power seems to think that is not the case.
0: <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I mean, it's so pathetic.
0: If you give them a job, then they are contributing. Of like, of course, it's cheaper.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, if they have like a little shack to sleep in, just a small little area to go to with a door to sleep in, then that's better for everyone. It's, you don't have to see people sleeping on street corners. There's no need for it. But the amount of money those people make, they can do it.
0: Oh yeah, but they don't want to give any. They don't want to give a cent up.
1: Yeah, I, I'm so sorry if I've created a heavy dynamic for our a, conversation. It's a heavy world. It sure is, it sure is. Um, I, I I think you deal with such uh, facts of life with humor on the record a
0: lot of the time, too. Yeah, it's uh, we, we have some uh, black comedy on there, gallows humor, I suppose.
1: I have so, plenty of it. This is a gallows humor safe podcast. Uh, what can you do but laugh? <laughs> yeah I got too right. much of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going on in my life. But <laughs> I really appreciate the wit that shows up on the record. I think a lot of people Thank you. I think a lot of alternative musicians believe that being morose is equivalent to wit and that doesn't that isn't the same.
0: Um yeah, I mean you you know like a uh... I think about this a lot, like I like to be irreverent with my art, but uh, I don't like to be whimsical. There's a big difference. What do you
1: define as whimsical?
0: I don't know if I can really define it so much as just go, yeah, that's it. Like it's you know, there's just there's just a limit to how silly things can get before it's too silly.
1: I'd uh I'd almost label that as like apathetic more than whimsical. Um when I when people say the word whimsical, I think of like Wes Anderson, uh, that type of <laughs> like type of heightened reality. Which there's a lot of depression and trauma going on in Wes Anderson films, of course. But that that's what comes to mind. Why I think whimsical. It's it's interesting. Yeah, there's to perhaps hear you.
0: some whimsy there. Yeah, it's well, interesting well,
1: me, to hear you use it in that context.
0: Let me think of. A, I'm trying to think of a good whimsical movie. I can't really. What's a good whimsical movie? I don't know. Maybe maybe just like the like spate of like crappy comedies that came out last decade. That's whimsical.
1: There were a lot of them. Oh my god. Yeah. Even Jed Apatow started getting pretty bad. Yeah, right. One like point. that that
0: that whole thing. That whole scene, not just him, but some of that stuff is just kind of like, come on. Take oh, yourself yeah. a little seriously. There's a difference between, you know injecting a little humor into something and just, you know, not having any other point, than this is a comedy.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, well, I mean, since you're so into film and uh, I, I think maybe you and me even share a film group or two, uh, oh, really? <laughs> a piece on Facebook, maybe I, I'd have to look into it further. I just, uh, I have several film groups I follow on different media accounts I'm sure we might share one or two. Would you like to discuss some of your thoughts on film
0: you've had lately? Um, I don't. I don't keep up to date on new stuff too much. I go there's a there's a theater here in Chicago called the Music Box that I go to pretty often. I just saw Nosferatu there. Oh my live, god! Yeah, with a live score. So I was expecting it to be an organist, and they had this band playing, and it was like this. Uh, I don't know. Like I want to say, like modern post punk kind of thing with a lot of synthesizers. It was really cool.
1: That that sounds really cool. That sounds like the yeah Me- it was. That sounds like the Metropolis score that happened around like the mid two thousands or maybe it's the twenty tens. Roger I really Ebert see
0: Metropolis.
1: Yeah, Roger Ebert wrote about this in his uh, book, The Great Movies, and his Metropolis segment of that book, and he said like. They had a uh, industrial band come in and like do the whole score. Oh, yeah. nice! Yeah, and he saw like a live performance of that, and that sounded incredible. Metropolis is an amazing film. If you've never
0: gotten around to it, yeah, he's what, another person from Champagne, Roger Ebert.
1: Oh, oh yeah, I uh, I love a, I love Roger Ebert. I've had a whole, I, I've had a long history of reading his works and. Kind of adapting some opinions because I just they've always been too correct for me to deny. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, some of his writing is getting a little stale, you know, as the years go on, for sure. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the process of being a, a critic, in the way he was. He, I mean, he was a critic the way Robert Pollard is a musician, right? You know, he gets <laughs> up. He wait, gets wait, up, wait. Who
0: is it? Robert Pollard. From from Guided by Voices. The- oh, God, that's another thing I have to check out. I I love home-recorded music, and they do a lot of 4-track stuff, but I've never actually gotten into them.
1: Oh, that, that's weird. I, I thought about mentioning yeah. them, but you hadn't brought it up, so I wasn't going to. But
0: uh, the, the, we could, the, Go ahead, we please. Could compare, sorry, yeah, we could compare it to Ween here and there, and I'm oh. like, I get that, but I don't listen to them.
1: I would think Mr. Bungle would be a better comparison maybe as far as like those two go. But yeah. uh like you know Roger Ebert was the type of guy it's like everything is film and you live and breathe film. So like uh, every every film out there is fodder for him to take in. And from what I read a lot of the times he would you know he'd be getting up in the morning and he'd be immediately going
0: to see film. Mm. Oh I also recently saw um my friends in the band Bob Genghis Khan. Did a live score to Carrie. Wow! Yeah, that was really incredible. How
1: did you uh, feel I affected the emotional tone of Carrie? Um,
0: it definitely heightened it. It, it was very intense. They're a very uh like improvisatory, noisy kind of band. Oh,
1: that's cool. Hey, yeah, I, yeah. It, uh... it
0: it was really intense.
1: Are you a, are you a fan of Stephen King's other stuff? I read The
0: Shining about two years ago. I'm a big fan of the movie. I know he's not, so I wanted to finally read the book, and it it was maybe like a better story, but it was a lot less of a sensory experience, like the movie is.
1: I, yeah, I think there is a sensory experience thing going on with The Shining. I have yeah.
0: my I have my issues
1: with The Shining. Stanley Kubrick is somebody I've been kind of letting go of the past few years because I think he, I think he was a compulsive nut to be like completely uh, raw about how I feel about Stanley Kubrick anymore. I think he constantly used people around him for just mean, like he was just being mean, like while striving for for perfection and it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. Like he was never a healthy guy from what I've been able to make out.
0: <laughs> he made like, some incredible art, but he, he kind of definitely had tunnel vision on the way there. Oh, man. He had such bad
1: tunnel vision. Okay. Um, the the film I talked about to start my podcast out with started an actor by the name of Scatman Crothers. Mm. And he's in The Shining. I can't remember his character's name, but he's the Dick old. Halloran. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he's in The Shining. And. At one point, Stanley Kubrick made him break down crying in a nervous, like, fit because (laughs) Kubrick kept making him say one line over and over and over again. And it wasn't even a line that mattered. Right. It wasn't a lot. Yeah.
0: uh, Have you seen Vivian Kubrick's behind-the-scenes documentary? No, I have,
1: I have no idea. When I found that out, I was just like, "I'm never watching The Shining again." Like, and then of course I found out also about like the the insanity Shelly. Shelley Duvall went through as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, all it's all just too much of a mess for me. But if you want to talk about the behind yeah. the scenes of it, we can. I'm happy to.
0: <laughs> there's the scene in that where um, there's there's some scenes where Shelley. Duvall and Stanley are kind of going at it a little bit. I and see. Those get talked about a lot, and like her hair is like falling out. Yeah. And um th- I mean, yeah, those those are one thing. People talk about those a lot, but there's a scene in there where they're just interviewing the actors about how they feel, and um Scatman Crothers is on camera and he's talking about how much he loves the whole cast and crew and everyone. And he's expressing a positive opinion, but he's like completely overcome by emotion while talking about it. And like, it's a very weird scene. He's, he's weeping. Oh, I have seen this. Yeah. It's very weird.
1: I have seen this and um, I, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he's like, I don't know if he's actually like crying or if he's just on the verge of tears. Right, but right. Yeah. This was used in some kind of retrospective by him, uh, retrospective about him by like a documentary channel or something like yeah. that. And he is sitting there and he talks about how like he is so honored to be on uh-huh. the film and to be part of the cast and crew of it. But he's like very emotional in a way that seems unnecessary for you know something he does every every day pretty much like i mean he was the type of actor that was doing a film if not every day then every other day because he was just always working and and i don't know what on set was happening at that moment and i didn't even know this was from the shining i just knew i just saw this clip and he said like oh i'm so happy to be on the set of this Mm -hmm. and yeah, oh man, that's that's such a weird connection you picked up on. Thank you for bringing
0: that up. What's weird about it is it doesn't seem like he's crying tears of joy. Like, he's saying how happy he is, and he's crying, and, you know, people cry tears of joy, that's the yeah. real thing, but he, he seems, like, out of it, totally overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very weird.
1: They said he wrote a song for every director. That he worked for as really? like a thank you, and like I mean I guess Stanley Kubrick got a song as well from from what I understand. And I just I just think it's fucked up that if he did that, then he must have like some. Uh, Snapman Crothers must have had a thing to where it's like I am so lucky that I get to make art that I'm going to show my appreciation for it no matter how things turn out
0: that's the only way i I, that's (laughs) the
1: only way i can rationalize it man like if somebody Mm -hmm. makes you cry in a nervous fit then why would you write a song for them showing (laughs) gratitude for being on their production or something like
0: writing art can be like you know creating art can be intense and sometimes even if it's not necessarily super positive sometimes you are just grateful for the intensity it's sometimes intensity is better than boredom yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, Especially post-pandemic.
1: Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly, too. I think some musicians maybe take a little too much uh, love in that intensity. Um, we we talked about Trout Mask Replica the last time oh. we, we had a go at this, and uh, I've been a big Captain Beefheart fan like as a teenager, and I, I'm a little less so now, but even then... There's still an intensity to that music that was that at the time was unlike anything else.
0: I think the creation of that record and the creation of The Shining, the you know, if you read about them, they they sound oh, very similar. They
1: have intense parallels. Like yeah, a yeah. lot of the a lot of the musicians. Thoroughly believe he was, like, brainwashing them. And if you read some of the stuff, it makes sense. Like, they they had almost no
0: personal life outside of just sitting in that I, house and doing... I mean, th- he was absolutely brainwashing them. I We used pseudonyms on our record, and, you know, some of them are Captain Beefheart references. Mine is Limbo Spam. Yeah, I kind of thought that was. Yeah, right. But some of them... See, he... I don't think he actually... Uh, called the people by their given names once he gave them those names i if that was to give them new identities
1: yeah yeah and uh of like, his own creation yeah uh jeff cotton and the uh yeah. the drummer john uh, french they talked about how like after that you were basically living the record which Uh I I don't know how you can make that music otherwise. I don't know how you'd be able to process it all without like constantly being so deep into it. But I also think a lot of that was just his personality as a creative individual. And as a writer, he was fidgety and (laughs) he he had too many ideas like that could be put into one thing at once. Probably. I I read a lot of interviews with the Magic Band, uh, like pre and post, like the full on retirement of Don Van Vliet from the music industry, mm-hmm. and they're just they're just so much unexplainable stuff too. Um, yeah. like one time they were sitting in the house being interviewed by Rolling Stone. Don Van Vliet just like. I, out of nowhere, it says the telephone is going to ring, and within <laughs> within like you know half a second, the telephone rings. Oh
0: my goodness! And no oh one can God. explain
1: this. No one's like, did the did, did he have somebody in another house ringing the telephone? Like this is way <laughs> this is way pre cell phone. You know, right? How the, how the hell do you get somebody and have them time it so accurately that? <laughs>
0: You Danny does that in the shining oh yeah 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 oh okay uh, <laughs> weird weird I think we're onto something here
1: that is super weird I man that's that's so weird thank you for pointing that out and I think part of the reason why so many people are attracted to that record is the intensity of it they they sense like a certain type of spirit and how it's put together but you don't get other ways um I think musicians are often seeking a form of intensity in spirit that, <laughs> that the, the the ordinary public often doesn't have, you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think it's completely unethical to do to his band what he did, but at the same time I wish I could practice fourteen hours a day. We, yeah, we're not. A, we're <laughs> I not, wish I had that kind of
1: time. We're not endorsing that history, oh, no. you know, at all on this podcast. If anyone thinks we are, we no, re- no. we respect what they accomplished, but that was they did not need to go that way at all. Those people could have no. learned that music just as easily, and it probably would have been a little easier for them to do it on a certain level as well to just go through. But there were so many issues in that band.
0: <laughs> I think he even, he was like ten years older than the rest of them. I think he even like people have said that he sought out younger musicians so they wouldn't know any better than to you know and to they treat him know. like
1: an elder statesman and to kind well, of take his word at face value for sure.
0: Right? Yeah. Like you know, on the one side of it, it's like, oh, like this is how you do it. Okay, cool. I guess this is how you do it. But on the other hand, I've heard people say if they had been older more experienced musicians they would have had a harder time playing that music which is so you know there's different uh time signatures going on at once or whatever
1: yeah and uh you can even see some inconsistencies through the different band bands Mm -hmm. because uh you know certain like different musicians would have to learn it different ways like post trout mask musicians Sometimes they'd be learning it directly from John French, and then sometimes they'd have to come up with their own arrangements for right. whatever was better in their performing situation. Um, I'm, I'm really glad John French came back for Doc at the Radar Station and the album before that. Uh, oh, no, okay, yeah. He's on Doc at the Radar Station, and he also does some arranging on Ice Cream for Crow." And uh, he, he's such a such an important presence in the band. Without him, there really <laughs> isn't
0: arrangements or anything he, going on. <laughs> he did most of the hard work on Trout Mask, I think. Like you know, yeah. like the, the stuff that uh, Art took uh, credit for. Oh uh, yeah. Don Don didn't practice with them.
1: No, no, and there's a certain logic about how with that music it's better for him to represent an or to be a type of oratory figure on top of it. But yeah, also he didn't practice with them. Like, <laughs> and when they were in the studio, he wouldn't even use headphones. He'd throw them right. they They had to throw a pair of headphones in the room to kind of give him a little more of a hand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And they, yeah. May, yeah, he would listen off the, uh, like balance of the studio glass. Have you ever listened To the actual house tapes they made?
0: No, what are you you talking about?
1: Okay, on the Grow Fins box set, the only recording, like, they basically have the whole album recorded with, like, a home recording device that they, that, like, Zappa rented out and brought to the house, so... Oh,
0: see, I knew they did some of that, but I didn't know that they did the whole
1: record it's, or anything. it's a pretty it's pretty much a good deal of the record if maybe a few tracks less um, without the vocals. So there's all these like instrumentals okay. of the of the music. and when you listen to that, you're going to hear intricacies and in those parts that you can't make out with Don singing on top of them because that's yeah, that's part of the thing his voice has. It's an obscuring thing. It's such a powerful. Voice that uh, when it comes in, it takes over the compositions.
0: Well, I I actually think that they even um, side chained the band mix to a compressor that, you know, oh, like, like basically like on it's it's most prominent on uh, Moonlight on Vermont.
1: Yeah, okay, that the makes entire a lot of sense.
0: the entire mix gets quieter when he sings. Yeah, and it takes a couple seconds to come back. That's that's a device doing that. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. uh,
1: There's a story also about him breaking a microphone during the recording of electricity. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Supposedly, like, he's saying at such a high pitch that the microphone just completely went out. Like, it couldn't even handle it. And there's, there's several stories like that. Um, I also wonder, though, too, like, how, it's okay. I also wonder, too, like, how many of those stories are the work of, like, brainwashed people? Uh. There are, like, enough, like, you could say with people who, who weren't part of his, like, little tribe that, like, they, they reiterate and said, yeah, that did happen, like, with the Rolling Stone thing on the telephone.
0: I, I don't remember which song on trout mask it is, but um, it's, it's one near the end where he's going, Oh, Lucy. And then he goes, shit, I don't know how I'm going to get that in there.
1: <laughs> it's because
0: he didn't know how long the song was. He just had lyrics that he just was going to sing over this song, no matter what. And yeah. he ran out of song to sing over and he didn't know he was going to.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's so funny. Um, What a lot of people would consider unprofessionalism on his part Is also an expression. It's also an expression of the avant-garde ideas of the sixties. Like it's also an expression of like these young white rock guys trying to incorporate free jazz and like Uh. oral poetry into their music as well. Uh, the, The Magic Band were kind and Beefheart himself. They were kind of hanging around the Sunset Strip too. They were playing around there. And they were getting a lot of looks from, uh, yeah, from from people who who were like hanging around the doors and other mm. people like that too. Uh, <laughs> I think at some point, like I, I think Morrison and Beefheart were halfway friendly between each other. Though there's not any, like, a, a, that's like, surprising. Rec- like, there's not any record of it, but I think they were uh-huh. like halfway friendly between each other as far as, like, showing up at gigs and things like that and having to share gigs here and there. Mm. There's a really great story I know of Jim Morrison when the doors... Okay. Jim Morrison and Van Morrison had this big, (laughs) like, fucking jam because the doors opened for them when Van Morrison was still in them. And those Mm. those two, like, had like such palatable voices between each other. Everyone who was there talked about this for years on end. I read about this in a big Jim Morrison biography. And I, I love hearing stories like that of like pre. It's the shared last name. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that probably is part of it. You know, that, that creates a kinship between people. Yeah, doesn't it? Literally. The ranges aren't <laughs> too far apart though. Van Morrison is by far the better singer.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I like Van Morrison better than The Doors.
1: Um, I don't. I can't say I've liked Van Morrison better than The Doors over the years. When I was in high school, I loved The Doors, and uh, that was that was probably like The Doors, and then Frank Zappa, and then I found Captain Beefheart, and I liked Captain Beefheart better than all those, yeah. like like anything else, because it was just like, well, every- oh oh.
0: I'm so glad you brought up Zappa, because Zappa himself is a great example of irreverence versus whimsy. His early career, which I mentioned earlier, his early career, very irreverent. And then later on, he gets too funny. He gets just pure whimsical, you know, like some of his stuff. It's like, come on, man, like you could write something more serious than this or like what's the song? There's the song on apostrophe. Um,
1: yellow snow or uh,
0: uncle remus
1: it's about it's i about love rape. i love that song that's one of the best racial
0: commentaries he
1: ever did
0: and it's it's funny and it's sad and it's powerful it's like i don't know how you could write a song like that and manage to make it funny without it not being serious too right and yeah. then and then some of his songs it's just like like puns he thought of that morning.
1: Yeah, I've a later on. Yeah, yeah, I've a, I've I've had a lot of ups and downs with yeah. his discography because he was just it's putting huge. out so much shit, and it's like, huge. it's it really is a thing to where as much as he wants to talk about there being a uh, there being a big grand scheme to all his music, yeah. So much of it is literally just him putting stuff out because he had the ability to, and he got it down on the record.
0: Well, the the conceptual continuity thing that he uh, applied to his music—that's what he called it when yeah. you know songs would reference other songs. i I find that pretty, you know. I, that's been a bit of an influence on Vinticke, and I would say,
1: hey, yeah, you know, it's great when it comes out to something bigger but you know you gotta admit there are just some times where he's just making a song up and it doesn't really have a whole lot of connection to other things I've I've, I've been through a lot of his discography and sometimes he's just putting jokes in like as yeah. melodies and it doesn't have any larger purpose than it just being a joke that he thought was funny in that moment and there are interviews where he says that like yeah that was yeah. what I felt at the time that was the mood I had at the time and mm. I, I don't necessarily hold it against him. Sure. Like to have a creative impulse and to go off on that spontaneously. But at the same time, when you're such a, such a well-regarded figure critically, mm-hmm. and you're right, I do think it does have whimsy. I think like when we get into the flow and Eddie stuff, we're being gratuitous. Like, a, a certain level of it is, like, uh, you could call it fan service almost. Like, he's, <laughs> he, he's feeding into the idea that he's dirty Uncle Frank, you know? And that's, yeah, yeah, this uh-huh. is what people want out of him. And it's just good, clean, <laughs> dirty fun with Uncle Frank. So, yeah, that yeah. that stuff is what, like, always <laughs> kept me from liking Frank Zappa the same way I like Beefheart. Because even with all of Beefheart's problems, like, every everything on those records is
0: arranged by it's not supposed to be funny. It just is.
1: No, no, it just is because there's just so much going on. And right. He also has a dry wit about him that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that goes in and out of his compositions. (laughs) And part of the reason it's so funny is because we don't, we don't think of serious music as sounding like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard Billy the mountain by Zappa on just another band from LA?
1: Yeah, I, I am aware of that it's composition. An, it's yeah. an
0: entire side. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. It is so extravagant. It's just like, oh my God. It, 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 there's even the Judy Blue Eyes part. It, 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 there's just way too much going on.
1: Uh, we, we were talking about Bongo Fury in a personal chat the other day.
0: Fantastic record.
1: It does have a lot of great stuff on it. Um, I definitely think there's a couple of times where Zappa's excesses tank some of the fun. But it's really great hearing Beefheart on top of the <laughs> on top of the Frank Zappa band from that era. And uh, yeah. Den- Denny Wally is a part of that and he would end up becoming part of the Magic
0: Band after that as well. Oh right. There was some crossover with those bands, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um uh, I can't remember Elliot Ingber. I think it's his name. He is part of the Clear Spot era of the band, and he basically came in and was like a lead guitar player, and just all he did was like play lead guitar on one or two songs. <laughs> There's some really good love songs on Clear Spot. I love a uh, Clear Spot, and I think it's one of the most underappreciated pop rock records. I think. I think that record has arrangements that other pop outfits could learn from, especially rock band outfits, because it never sacrifices its, like, heaviness. It never sacrifices heaviness for groove. It has a groove (laughs) to it that is powerful and intense and, like, um, very R&B-inflected in the way Little Feet was from around that time. But it's also, like, a rock record. Like, it has the searing lead guitar licks. It, it has the the gender uh, criti-
0: uh, <laughs> critique
1: going on in it.
0: What's the... Well, I can't... My Human Gets Me Blues on Trout Mask has some, like... Uh... It, it it almost sounds like he's talking about trans issues back in the 60s on that song.
1: Sometimes I think like he was bordering on talking about gender issues in that way. Yeah. If, if you look like yeah, that's another thing too that I always liked about the band. It's like progressive in a sideways way. He he spoke out against people he really hated. Like he hated Ronald Reagan and would actively <laughs> put him down That performance I sent you last night. I
0: haven't gotten to that yet. I'm okay.
1: Sorry. Well, at the end of Dirty Blue Jean, he like uh-huh. puts down Ronald Reagan and, and like That's says he saddle soaps his hair.
0: Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's great. Like I I doubt any Frenchman in that audience had any idea what he was going on about. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh yeah we've been talking for a good moment i really appreciate you giving me all your time um for sure if you have anything else you'd like to say before we go please say it here if you have any further thoughts about your band about the record please tell me
0: well i guess i'll just say uh you can find ben chicken on all your favorite streaming services uh go do that thanks for having me
1: hey thank you for being here Liam. The new Ben Chicken record, it's fantastic. Everybody, check it out. This has been Conversations with Robbie Sherman. I'm Robbie Sherman. Good night, everybody.